Turn, if you will, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This morning we'll consider verses 37 to 43. Some of you who prefer shorter sermons, yeah, I know that you're out there. Some of you might dream of the day that the sermon began, and in conclusion, well, this is as close as you're going to get this morning, but it's not probably going to be any shorter. Let me explain. John chapter 12 is the end of the major portion of the book of John. This is the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Oh, he has much more to say to his disciples, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. He's going to instruct his disciples, chapter 17, prayer, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of that's still to come. But the public teaching and preaching and healing ministry of Jesus is over. It's finished already. We finished with that last week. So here at the end of, the, of chapter 12, after the end of Jesus' public ministry, when it says that he left them and went and hid himself, the end of verse 36, then the Apostle John gives us some summary statements. Actually, two summaries. First, the passage we'll talk about this week, a summary of the results, the response to Jesus' ministry. And then a summary of the content, what it was that Jesus said. If you look back through all of these 12 chapters, what was it that he said? So in that sense, we can begin this morning saying, in conclusion, that is, in the conclusion of Jesus' ministry, we're going to look now at what kind of response it got, the results of it. For in that response, the response of these people, we see some warnings that God would send to us about our response. Well, let me read the verses, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he blinded their eyes and deadened hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. There are two truths that I'd like for us to hear from this text this morning. They're both warnings to us. The first is this. We dare not spurn God's grace. We dare not spurn God's grace. This morning we face one of the most difficult subjects in the whole Bible. The relationship between our freedom to choose and being held accountable for what we choose, on the one hand, and God's sovereign control over everything, on the other hand. How can those both be true? What's the relationship here? Hopefully we'll shed a little bit of light on that. But our goal is not to become great theologians here this morning. Our goal is simply to learn from the experience of Israel how that we dare not spurn God's grace. 
There are two key statements in this first part of our text this morning, verses 37 to 41. Two key statements that set that great dilemma before us. In verse 37, we read, they would not believe. And then down in verse 39, we read, they could not believe. Well, that's interesting. Which is it? They would not or they could not? Well, let's look at would not first. Verse 37 and 38. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, whenever we're caught in some kind of a, uh, infractions on doing something wrong, our first line of defense is often to plead ignorance. You, you probably might have done that. Uh, oh, oh, I didn't, I didn't, 35? I didn't know it was a 35 mile zone here. I thought it was 50. You had that little discussion, plead ignorance, maybe it'll help. No, it doesn't, I've heard. God says explicitly here, these people couldn't plead, plead ignorance. They couldn't plead ignorance. God had made Jesus' identity clear. It says that in verse 37. He had done many miraculous signs in their presence. In fact, this is John's structure of the whole book. The end of the book over in chapter 20, when John's telling us why he wrote this gospel, he says that Jesus did so many wonderful works, so many miraculous signs, we couldn't even fit them all in this book. But he said, these things I've told you so that you'll know who Jesus is and believe on him. And then he picks eight signs, eight wonderful works that Jesus did, which tell us something about his identity. And the whole structure of this book is hung on those eight signs, as John calls them. He turned the water into wine back in chapter 2. He cleansed the temple. He healed the nobleman's son, just speaking. At a distance, he healed him. He healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. He fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He stilled the wind in the stormy sea by just speaking a word, and it was calm. He opened the eyes of a man who was blind from birth, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Eight signs that John sets before us. And of course, along with those signs are these great discourses that all center in one of the statements that Jesus makes about his own identity, where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And in four, chapter 14, he's going to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. So in verse 37, it's clear that Jesus had made his identity clear with all of these signs and these discourses and these statements about himself. They were without excuse. They understood. They could see clearly. It had been revealed to them who this was that came. Yet we read, they would not believe. Songwriter Michael Card has a book on the Gospel of John called Parable of Joy. In that book he writes about this account. Listen to what he says. It is a sad but amazing fact that those who demand miraculous signs never believe when they see them. That's John's point. Jesus' witness to the people has been consistent. He has perfectly fulfilled every sign the prophets have ever spoken. He has preached, begging them to open their eyes. 
but the response has been persistent disbelief and willful misunderstanding. He goes on. A dead man has walked out of the tomb and stands there beside Jesus. But they will not see and understand who has come. God's own voice is echoing in the distance where he spoke from heaven. And they discuss whether or not it was thunder. Now Jesus, the light, is about to leave. He came to open their eyes. But they were unwilling to even wash away the mud. They would not believe. After seeing it all and hearing it all, after God himself appeared before their very eyes in human flesh, speaking nothing but truth, doing nothing but good and showing mercy and miraculous deeds, they would not believe. They rejected him. They spurned God's grace. You know, we, we know more than they did. We have the record of all they knew, plus we also know about the crucifixion. We know how God raised him from the dead, how he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, how he sent his spirit how he established his church, how for 2,000 years, generation after generation after generation has known his power working among us, how he's changed lives from darkness to life, from living death to, to, to real eternal life. We've seen all of that way more than they ever know. We'd better not spurn God's grace either. Oh, it didn't take Jesus by surprise that this happened. Verse 38, he quotes from Isaiah 53. You remember what Isaiah 53 is? Isaiah 53 is the great prophecy about the suffering servant, how the Messiah would come not to rule with a rod of iron, but how the Messiah would come to suffer and to die and to bear the transgressions of his people. But that passage begins with the words, Lord, who who has believed? You see... Even 700 years earlier, God had already prophesied that he would be despised and rejected. Oh, God was not like some little starry-eyed entrepreneur. He thinks he has some product and he's going to make a million and he spends all he has only to find out nobody cares and they reject his product and he goes broke. God's not like that. He knew exactly the cost. He knew the rejection that was coming. He knew the hardness of people's hearts. And yet... He came in human flesh and he showed his glory among the people and by many miraculous signs he showed himself and he offered himself just because he loved us so. But they wouldn't have him. They would not believe. And how about you? You see, we dare not spurn God's grace. Now if that's all there was to this text, it would be rather simple. We could summarize it and say, God has made a fantastic offer, don't miss it, and deaden their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Oh, this goes way beyond God saying, I knew in advance you were going to reject me. 
Here we are clearly told that they could not believe because God had blinded their eyes and deadened their, hear, their ears and hardened their hearts. Here God says clearly that he exercises sovereignty, control. Even over who believes in Jesus, and who rejects him. Now let me say right up front, that's not an arbitrary act of God. The Bible never teaches the notion that God sees all mankind as some kind of morally neutral group. And just for fun says, I think I'll send this one to heaven and I'm going to choose to send that one to hell. And this one goes to heaven and that one goes to hell. Just for his own pleasure, just chooses arbitrarily some to heaven, some to hell, because he likes to do that. That's not the God of the Bible, folks. Well, that would be a sovereign God, but that's not the God of the Bible. Instead, the Bible teaches that God, seeing humanity and understanding that they will choose to reject him and that they will be plunged into a hopeless eternity of judgment, God who is not only just, but God who is full of grace and mercy says it's not enough to just give them all what they deserve, and he chooses to pick some out of the fire. Not because they deserve any less judgment than others, but just because he chooses to love them while others get what they deserve. In other words, no one will ever go to hell because God chose him or her for hell. People only go to hell because they deserve to go to hell. They deserve God's judgment. And conversely, no one will ever go to heaven because he or she deserves to go to heaven. All who go to heaven will go there only because God chose to rescue them from the hell they deserve along with everyone else. God is sovereign in our salvation. And we're going to talk about that whole big picture here in just a minute, but let me focus back on John 12. Something specific is happening here in John 12. It's part of that big picture, but it's also a very specific thing. What we have going on in John 12 is what has often been called judicial hardening. Judicial hardening. God had given them light. The light of the world came. They loved their darkness. They loved their wickedness. They didn't want to see it. And so God blinded their eyes where they could not see it. The good news of the kingdom had been preached. They shut up their ears. They didn't want to hear that about Jesus. And so God deafened their ears so they could not hear. They had hardened their hearts against Jesus again and again. They would not have such a Messiah as he was. And so God hardened their hearts so that they could not receive such a Messiah. Judicial hardening is the very specific thing that's going on here. Now that's not an isolated truth in Scripture. Isaiah 6.10 that... John quotes here about God blinding their eyes and all is preceded by Isaiah 1. Listen to what God says about his people in Isaiah 1. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children of corruption, 
They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. So God calls Isaiah and he says, go preach to them. But let me tell you, I've hardened their hearts and I've closed up their ears. In judgment. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1. Three times. He says, people would not have God as their God. They would not walk in his ways. They chose perversion over his ways. They would not retain him in their knowledge. So three times it says God gave them up. Gave them up. To increased wickedness. Gave them up to their perversions. Gave them up to a depraved mind that called black, white, and white, black. Judicial hardening. Book of Hebrews says the same thing again and again in warnings about not turning away because you could not be restored. Chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to insult the spirit of grace, to trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which you're sanctified. To treat the blood of Jesus as an unholy thing. Those who would not believe God hardened so that they could not believe. You see, we dare not spurn the grace of God. Now that's specifically what's going on here. That way of the interaction between their rejection and the sovereignty of God. But that's only part of the bigger can of worms that we've opened. Which is how can God hold people responsible and at the same time be sovereign over all things? It's a great mystery. Our understanding is dwarfed by the mind of God. All we can do is to say what God says, what he does not say, whether we can fathom it or not. You see, here God does not say that he hardened their hearts so that they could not believe, and therefore they're not responsible for their actions because God made them do it. Oh, no, that's not what it says. He holds them responsible. Nor does God say that they refuse to believe, so he hardened their hearts, so that really the success or failure of all God's work is based on whether they receive it or not. So really they're in control. Oh no, that's not what he says. He's sovereign. Here the Bible clearly teaches they would not believe in spite of all of the evidence clearly laid out before them. Therefore they are responsible for their rejection of Jesus. And at the same time, it teaches that they could not believe because God had sovereignly chosen to harden their sinful hearts. At the very same time, he was softening other people's hearts. According to the good pleasure of his will, according to his eternal decrees that are beyond our comprehension. Well, I'm in over my head. How about you? Do you understand all that? I don't. Best explanation, I've probably told you this before because I tell it all the time. I'll probably tell it again until you're tired of hearing it, but it helps me. Maybe it'll help you. Best explanation, best word picture I've heard of how we understand the interaction between God's sovereignty and our responsibility and, and, and the extremes we have to avoid. The best illustration I've heard is from Francis Schaeffer some years ago before he died. He said there are two things, two basic positions that people have taken over the years. 
One says that God is like a powerful giant, but he's a trained giant. And man is the trainer. And this God can do anything. He's tougher than anyone. All man has to do is give the order, and he will do it. People say, oh, no, that's not how it is. God is really a grand puppeteer. And man is his puppet. God does everything. He makes every decision. You may think you're making the decision. You may think you're acting. But God's only pulling your string. You move your arm because God pulled it. Pull the other one. Made you speak. God's the grand puppeteer. Man is zero, really. He's a puppet. So here you have a helpless giant with man making the decision. And here you have the grand puppeteer with God pulling the string. Now Schaefer explains that both of these views, this is what we would call extreme Arminianism, and this is what we would call extreme Calvinism. Both of these views, Schaefer says, are the very same, listen to the word he calls it, sin. Because both of these views are an attempt to bring the eternal sovereign God down to something you can fit in your understanding. You see, I can understand a helpless giant who does whatever I say. And I can understand a grand puppeteer who pulls my strings. But I cannot understand an eternal sovereign God who absolutely foreordains everything that comes to pass and makes man in his image and gives him choices and holds him accountable for his choices in a meaningful way. Now that I cannot understand, but that's what the Bible teaches. Some of you are jealous to preserve your free will at any cost. Even if you talk about God choosing, you'll make sure that we understand he only chose those that he foreknew were going to decide for him. Be careful, you've made God a helpless giant. Acting, jumping to the commands of man. But when you do that, you strip God of his sovereignty. You dethrone him, you put man on the throne. You hold the mighty one captive to the fickle whims of man. You deny the infinite wisdom and power and glory and sovereignty of God. And when you do that, the God that you're left with could save no one, for he's no bigger than you are. Others are just as jealous to preserve the sovereignty of God and his eternal decree. There are people that it's not even a good sermon if you don't really get on to predestination. Talk about the decrees. Wait a minute. Be careful. Don't make God out to be a grand puppeteer. When you press God's sovereignty to that point, that you make man's choices meaningless, you make man a mere puppet, you call God a liar. For it is the sovereign one who created man with a will in his own image. It is the sovereign one who gave man choices, and it is the sovereign one that holds us accountable for those choices. 
When you press only this truth, you turn the God of all grace, one filled with compassion, into an eternal tyrant. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who would send his only son to save his enemies because he loved them so. We can't understand all these things. But don't strip one away and grab a hold of the other or you'll miss the truth. Or strip that one away and grab a hold of this or you'll miss the truth. Deuteronomy 29 says the secret things belong to God. You won't comprehend. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children so that we may follow all the words of this law. And you see, you don't have to understand all the secret intricacies of the mind of God and how he can work the, what considers what seems to be impossible to us. You don't have to understand all of that to understand that here in John 12, those people who would not believe found that they could not believe because they were not just making decisions on their own, they were dealing with the Sovereign One. And you don't spurn God's grace. Because you too, and me too, we are dealing with the Sovereign God, who is not at our disposal. We are at His disposal. Don't spurn God's grace. Well, then there's a second warning here. Verses uh, 41 following. Similar to the first, but maybe more where we live. Here it is. Don't trifle with Jesus. Don't trifle with Jesus. You know, we all like it when the issues are black and white. When the bad guys are really bad. They wear black hats where we know who they are, and the good guys are really good, and they wear white hats where we know who they are. And the bad guys always lose, and the, white, the, 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 and the good guys always win. Uh, we like that, but we all know life isn't that simple either, is it? And so it is with our response to Jesus. We like it when people either boldly for him or cursing his name. Then we know who's who, right? But you know... In reality, I doubt that there's anyone sitting here this morning. I doubt there's one person in this room who would even think about the possibility of shaking your fist in God's face and saying, I hate you. I will not have your grace. I will not have you in my life. Leave me alone. Oh, well, some of us might do that someday. We might get to that point, but I doubt there's even one person sitting here this morning who would even conceive of doing that. There's another response mentioned here which strikes much closer to home. And it may be exactly where some of us are this morning. That response is the way of the fence-sitter. The secret believer. The one who would never dare to spurn God, to openly reject Him, but neither is courageous enough to confess him openly. The one who believes but would never risk anything to let it be known. 
And from these people, we need to learn the second warning. Don't trifle with Jesus as if he's nothing. Don't treat him as if he's no big deal. There are actually three groups of people standing here. There's the disciples who truly believe in Jesus, the, the Peter and James and John and those. And there are others, too. We know that by the time Jesus rose from the dead, there were 500 at least that he appeared to. So there are those true disciples. And then there are the, the, the Pharisees, the leaders, who openly reject and are, hostile, are, are, and are hostile to Jesus, the ones who are plotting his death as they speak to him. But then there's this other group. In verse 42 and 43, let me read it. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. These are the secret believers. Now the intriguing question is, were they really believers? Is it possible to be a secret believer? Well, on the one hand, uh, maybe. They could have been, it seems. For example, the grammar John uses when he talks about them believing in Jesus and them, them, uh, about their faith, it's exactly the same kinds of words, it's exactly the same grammatical construction that he uses when he's talking about true disciples who believe with faith in Jesus. No distinction that we can see in the language. And in fact, later we see some of these secret believers apparently Becoming more bold, I think of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who only a little while, long, a little while after this, when Jesus was crucified, they, they, they went to Pilate, they openly identified themselves with concern for Jesus, and they took his body, they made arrangements to bury him. It certainly was a softening of the hostility of their friends that they lived and worked with. The reality of our own experience would suggest that there are those, don't you know people? Maybe you've been one that believed and yet at first was pretty quiet about it. Not, not, nobody really knew what was going on in your heart yet. So I think it, we, we have to say it's possible that these leaders did truly believe someone. I think it's possible enough that when we come upon such fearful faith, we need to remember that Jesus did not snuff out the smoldering wick just because it wasn't blazing brightly and he did not break the bruised reed just because it was wounded a little bit. In other words, Jesus never taught his church to kill its wounded, to destroy its weak children. But we've kind of done that, haven't we? Maybe, maybe they truly believed but on the other hand, boy, the whole idea of secret believers seems pretty foreign to the Scripture and foreign to what Jesus had to say in other places. For, for example, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, we read the passage that sounds rather clear on the subject. There we read, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart you believe and are justified, and with the mouth 
you confess and are saved. Believe and confess, not believe and keep your mouth shut so nobody will know. Well, perhaps even more disturbing is Jesus' own statement recorded in Mark 8, where he says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Ooh, that might give us pause at the thought of being a secret believer. The truth is we can't look at these people's hearts, but I think we would have to agree with the assessment of William... Barclay, who says, these people were seeking to carry out the impossible. They were trying to be secret disciples. Secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms, for either the secrecy kills the discipleship, or the discipleship will kill the secrecy. Either secrecy will kill the discipleship, or the discipleship will kill the secrecy. You see, there's no place to sit on the fence. You dare not trifle with Jesus. One more interesting fact about these guys before we close. When John's talking about this secret, these secret believers, he does a little play on words. It's not obvious to us in our English translations but it's real obvious in the Greek in which it was written. The word for praise in verse 43, where we read, for they love the praise from men more than praise from God. The word from, for praise is not the normal word that you should use for praise. It's a different word. It's the word doxa, from which we get doxology. It's a word that means glory. They love the glory of men more than the glory of God. Well, now that, that points us back up to verse 41 where Isaiah is talking about the vision. So you remember Isaiah's visions recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, on the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up on his throne and his train filled the whole temple. And there were seraphim, angel, heavenly hosts surrounding his throne. And they were crying out day and night, holy Holy, holy is the Lord. Isaiah says, woe is me. I've had it. I'm done because I'm unclean. Now verse 41, John says that the glory Isaiah saw that day was the glory of Jesus. The Son with the Father. That was the glory. Now these leaders, they had heard about that vision all their life. Oh, I bet they'd probably wish, man, boy, if I'd have been Isaiah, if I could have seen what Isaiah saw, the glory of God in his holy. And now into their lives walks Jesus. The glory in human flesh doing nothing but righteousness, righteousness saying nothing but truth acting only in love and mercy and faithfulness
And they understood that he was from God. And they understood that what he said was true. And they believed in him in some sense. But they would not confess him. Why? Because they were so infatuated with a different kind of glory. The praise, same exact word in verse 43, the glory of men. They knew that if they confessed Jesus, they would lose the glory, the praise of men. They'd be kicked out of the synagogue. They'd be excommunicated. They would be considered outcasts. People would tell their children, look out for him. He's a bad guy. What they loved and what they feared, they had all backwards. They feared men more than they feared God. They loved the glory of men more than they loved the glory of God, though he had come in human flesh and stood and they looked him in the eyes face to face. What Isaiah saw only in a vision, they saw face to face and rejected for the approval of their peers. What a pathetic assessment in the greatest moment of their lives. They missed it. They trifled with Jesus. They traded eternal glory for the glitzy praise of men. Folks, here's where the spiritual rubber meets the road. Discipleship is, at, at, at its heart, a matter of what we love and what we fear. In fact, it's even simpler than that. Let me put it this way. What you love the most is what you will be most afraid of losing. What you love the most, you will be most afraid of losing. So you can say, I love this so much, but if you're afraid of losing something else so much that you deny that, you really love this more. So which do you love more? The approval of people around you or God's approval? The approving looks on people's faces to be highly esteemed in their eyes or God's approval? Being faithful and loyal to your friends, not going against the grain, or being faithful and loyal to your God? Which? And perhaps we might even note that it was religious acceptability that was on the line here. That's what they loved so much. While Jesus called him to love, called them to love him so much that they might even lose their traditional faith because they were such radical disciples of Jesus and they loved him so much. They wouldn't. Will you? Don't trifle with Jesus. Or as Jesus would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind 
and all your strength. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear him who has the power to send both body and soul into hell. What you love the most, you'll be most afraid to lose. Secret believers who love the praise of men more than the glory of God, may it never be. That was the plea of Joseph Grigg. He wrote a hymn 250 years ago. I don't know nothing about this man, but this is what he says in his hymn. Jesus, shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend? No, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. You know, when we read the Bible, we read these accounts of people long ago. I don't know about you, but I sat there and I often almost would say out loud, how could they be so stupid? How could they miss it? <laughs> As Michael Card said, how could they stand there with Lazarus, who was dead, and now he's alive, standing next to Jesus and rejected? How could you miss that? How could you turn away after all they'd seen? How could you throw away the Lord's treasures for such trinkets? But folks, these people were folks just like us. And when they grew up and when they sat in their homes and were told the stories of Moses and King David and the people of Israel, I'm sure that they said, how could those people be so stupid? God gave a manna from heaven and they turn around and grumble. How could they do that? Don't you think they did the same thing we did? They grew up on the scriptures. But it, when it was their time in the ring, their time on the field, when it was their lives and their friends and their comfort and their home and their reputation and their religious acceptance, when that's what was on the line, they flinched and played it safe and backed off. And now we look and we say, how could they be so stupid? And now it's your turn my turn. Now it's our watch in this long night of history. Now it's our time in the ring with the enemy. And we don't pick our foes and we don't pick the issues and we don't pick the pressures that might come. We might all be geared up to fight one thing, but something else comes. And we say, oh man, this is a lot harder because this is going to cost me my reputation and my friends and my, my, it might cost me my job. And someday when our great, 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 great grandchildren look back, what are they going to say? When they read account of our lives, what are they going to say? You know, when the chips were down, 
when everything was really on the line, Grandpa flinched. He caved in, he got scared, and he backed down. He went along, though he knew it was wrong, he kept his mouth shut and denied the Lord. I knew he knew better in his heart, but he never said anything. How could he be so stupid? Oh, God forbid that that should be said of us. But it could be. Unless we learn not to spurn God's grace. Unless we learn not to trifle with Jesus. To get clearly in our mind that what you love the most is what you will refuse to lose. And that better be the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, even to preach these things uh, is scary. Because I remember Peter saying, Oh Lord, not me, I'll never deny you. It was only a few hours until he said, no, I never heard of him. We could deny you too, Lord. And we could trifle with you. And we could get to the point that we could shake our fist in your face and be hardened against you. Oh, Lord, we have no confidence in ourselves. So we ask you by your grace to sustain us, to build us up in the inner person, to hold us close to yourself, to cause us, Lord, to love you like you loved us, to cause us to love you so much that we would do anything to not displease you, that we would fear the very most your disapproval. Oh God, give us those kind of hearts. We can't do that for each other. We can't even conjure it up in ourselves. We need your grace. We need the power of your spirit working in us. I ask you to do that in me, Lord, and I ask you to do it in these dear people. In Jesus' name, amen.